The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. LinkedIn News. Hi, I'm Daniel Roth, LinkedIn's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome to This Is Working. On this show, we talk to leaders who have a significant impact on how we live and how we work. Today, I'm talking with Dallas Mavericks owner and true Maverick entrepreneur, Mark Cuban. Earlier this year, Mark launched Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company. It does exactly what the name says it does. His company carries over 100 generic drugs that are priced at the manufacturer's cost, plus a 15% markup and a $3 pharmacy fee. The idea is to bring down the cost of prescription drugs through, well, low costs and transparency. And not surprisingly, that is an incredibly popular idea. According to the Health Policy Institute and the Commonwealth Fund, more than 66% of all U.S. adults use prescription drugs. 41% have medical debt. Where the government struggles to bring systemic change, entrepreneurs like Mark Cuban are stepping in and putting public good over profit margin. So what can we take away from his decision to enter the pharma industry? I mean, so many people have tried and failed to fix healthcare in the US, and I wanted to understand why Mark felt like he was uniquely positioned to fix prescription drug pricing and why he thought he needed to do it right now. Here's our conversation. It's been four years in the making. Uh, my partner, Dr. Alex uh, Oshmiansky, contacted me via cold email and he was putting together a compounding pharmacy that he wanted to offer low-cost drugs that he literally made um, effectively in a small factory. And we started discussing how we could scale it. And the more we talked and the more I learned about the pharmaceutical industry and the, the pricing distortions that were in place that he was trying to overcome, the more excited I got about doing something with him. And that was approaching four years ago. And it took almost those four years to go through all the registrations, the licensing, you know, the relationships, the introductions, in order to be able to get manufacturers and distributors to even sell to us. And from there, we put together costplusdrugs.com and we launched it January 19th. And the response has just been astronomical. And to directly answer your question, the more we got, I got into the um, pharmaceutical industry and the more I was educated about it, the more it was obvious to me that there was a unique opportunity, that new players that had gotten in had got so caught up in trying to get scale um, as quickly as possible that they played along rather than trying to buck the trend or, or try to take on the incumbents. And so we chose to take on the incumbents and work outside the way things have been traditionally uh, done by removing the middleman. And that allows us to sell at the price when we do. Any big surprises since you've launched? Yeah, I thought it'd be a lot faster for them to to say, yes, let us sell you our drugs, <laughs> you know? And one of the reasons I put my name on it was so they knew it was just not another company. They knew I was serious. This is the only company that has my name on it. And to try to accelerate the whole process because, you know, it's not a very trusting industry. There are gatekeepers everywhere. And anybody who manufactures or sells a drug, whether it's generic or branded, has to deal with those gatekeepers in order to get any scale. So they were rightfully reluctant it, but we were able to build the trust. And then once they saw the response we got to those first hundred or so drugs, then, you know, their confidence and trust built. And so we expect to be able to add uh, hopefully at least a thousand and hopefully as many as 2000 by year end. 
Well, that's incredible. So 10, yeah. 10x uh, increase by the end of the year. My understanding is that this came out of a cold email from Alex. So Alex, as you mentioned, is the CEO, radiologist, uh, yep. been watching uh, what happened with high drug costs that were killing some of his patients. And he's been looking at this for years. He reached out to you with a cold email and that's what got you interested? Yeah. I mean, believe it or not, I've invested tens, if not $100 million plus in people that cold emailed me, many of whom I've still not met. <laughs> which is kind of mind-boggling to some, but I have my approach and it, it's worked out well. And, you know, I was able to create a dialogue with Alex and go in depth. And to me, when someone approaches me with a cold email, I typically read the first paragraph. And if I'm interested, I'll continue reading. And if not, I'll just hit the delete key in about 30 seconds or less. And Dr. Oshmyansky was, I was peppering with him with questions about everything. And he's, he's just a brilliant guy. And, and his responses were right on target and the things I was looking for. And that led me to make an investment. As I prepared for this conversation, I got some help from a series of posts by LinkedIn member Erin L. Albert. She had researched the enormous price discrepancy in a handful of drugs between retail pharmacies and Mark's company. The one that really jumped out at me was the generic version of the cancer drug Gleevec. Mark's company charges about $47. Aaron had Walgreens price as over $2,300. I asked Mark to explain this. So what happens is the pharmaceutical industry has become very vertically integrated via acquisitions. So you have insurance companies that own hospital systems and different doctor care systems, and they also own retail pharmacies, and they also own these things called pharmacy benefit managers. And pharmacy benefit managers are effectively, and not all, I don't want to to demean every single pharmacy benefit manager, but many of the biggest that are owned in these vertically integrated companies have really gotten to a process where they distort the pricing. So one, they act as gatekeepers. So they'll go to a hospital system and say, look, you know, you don't want to have to go and negotiate with all these distributors and manufacturers for all your drugs. Let us do it for you. And they're like, fine, you could probably get it you know, cheaper than I can. And so then they go out and negotiate the prices. And then from there, that's where the gamesmanship starts. So they'll do things like they'll say to the manufacturer, look, I control access to this hospital and this insurance company. And if you want them to include your drug and not your competitors' drugs, here are certain things that you need to do. You need to jack up your list price so that it's not really correlated to your cost because the higher the list price of the drug, when some of the government programs pay an amount that's just a discount from the retail price, we'll both be able to make more money. And they go along with it. Then the second thing they do is the pharmacy benefit manager says, you know, I control access to all these companies, the, the provider and the insurance companies and the, the pharmacies that would fill the patient's orders. That cost me a lot of money. Why don't you rebate me a percentage of sales so that I can support all my overhead? And the manufacturers do. So if you add in rebates, you add in all these other requirements, high retail pricing, that allows the pharmacy benefit managers to then say to the hospitals and providers, look, you know, our costs are a little bit higher than we expected. We're going to charge a little bit more. We're not going to pass through all these cost savings. We got you. And that distorts the price and jacks up the price at the retail pharmacy when patients go to pick up their drugs. It doesn't just jack it up. I and mean, what you're talking about is so convoluted 
yeah. that it, it would be impossible or not impossible, but super hard to just pull out the pieces of like, or if you just get rid of this. It's never possible. That's why when you look at the government and they're trying to regulate pricing because it's almost impossible to understand it. And look, even I get a lot of these little pieces wrong because there's little nuanced differences from pharmacy benefit manager to pharmacy benefit manager and what, what insurance company and what um, provider you're talking about. And so they, they play all these games. There's so many little things that, that just all add up. It'd be like if the bouncer at a restaurant, a fancy restaurant, said to the restaurant, let me go out and um, get all the liquor and pick the food um, and I'll get you a better price. And then charged all those companies that, you know, that are providing food and alcohol a cover charge to get into the restaurant. It's just so convoluted and distorted. And the victim here are patients who are paying far too much money. During our conversation, which was live on LinkedIn, a lot of our members had questions for Mark about what comes next. One member wanted to know about Mark's plans to make specialty medications more affordable to patients. Yeah, the specialty medications, particularly ones that are individualized or just have very small markets, are, are very difficult for us because there are just a few doctors that prescribe them, a few patients that need them. And so we haven't really been able to crack that code yet. But our hope is, as we talk to those manufacturers, we can get them to sell directly to us rather than going through the traditional pharmacy benefit manager route. And so one of the reasons we're able to do what we do is we don't work through insurance companies. Our prices and our pricing is very well set. If you go and, you know, Levoxetine or any of those drugs that are hard to pronounce, if you go to costplusdrugs.com and we carry your drug, you'll see our actual cost. And so you'll see our cost. You'll see what our 15% markup is. You'll see our $3 handling fee. You'll see our $5 shipping charge. And that's it. And so the challenge for us, whether it's one of the specialty drugs or specialty therapies, is just to get them to sell to us because they're afraid that these big pharmacy benefit manager integrated companies is going to not want to carry their drug. And so that's our challenge. But if we can solve that challenge, we'll just sell it right at our cost plus 15%. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm DC Marshall. Hi, I'm Mita Malik. We are the co-host of the Brown Table Talk podcast, where we discuss how to help women of color thrive in their workplaces. And we invite allies to join us to help women of color win at work. We have a seat waiting for you. Subscribe to Brown Table Talk wherever you enjoy podcasts. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn. LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One.
Welcome back. During our conversation, we had another great member question come in. This member specifically wanted to know how Mark Cuban's new drug company would address pharma's impact on marginalized communities. Here's what Mark said. It's very important to what we do. So one of the ways we choose the drugs that we've gone after first are based off the equity behind the drugs, meaning what's the population that tends to use them and is unable to afford them. You know, the whole underpinning of doing this is recognizing that too many people have to make a decision between their rent, food, and medication. And that should never happen in the United States of America or anywhere in the world. And so we really take into account underserved and underprivileged communities and the equity behind their access to drugs and the first drugs that we went after and will continue to do so. But the bottom line is, you know, we've really gotten our prices so low that for 99% of the people who use us, we're going to be cheaper than their copay. And that's by going outside of the insurance industry, it annoys them. And we're still relatively small or we are small. So, you know, we're just a gnat on their back. But we try to solve that problem by just having the lowest price. You're not going to see when you go to costplusdrugs.com and look up to see if your prescription is available. You're not going to see bells and whistles. You're not going to see a telehealth option. You're not going to see a blog post by some world-renowned doctor. It's just going to be the basics. Our mission is very simple. We want to be the low-cost drug provider for every drug we sell, period, end of story. Speaking of mission, I know Alex set up the original company as a nonprofit. You have set this company up as a public benefit corporation. What what made you decide to go that route instead of a straight for-profit company? Because my goal is not to maximize profits. My goal is to maximize impact. My goal is to disrupt the pharmaceutical industry as much as possible. My goal is to, as I said, be the low cost provider, but to do it with with as little government, if any government intervention whatsoever. By doing it as a public benefit corporation, we can still be profitable knowing that we're going to reinvest those profits into adding more drugs, expanding manufacturing facilities so that we can lower the pricing of the drugs that we sell. Just doing things that really our goal is just as the PBC um, suggests is to be a public benefit corporation. We didn't take on any investors. I put up all the money myself, so I don't have any obligation to anybody um, other than my customers. For anyone who wants to become a PBC in any industry, what kind of advice would you give on, on why to go that route? That's something you need to, to talk to a lawyer about and a tax accountant about. Everybody's in a different set of circumstances. Mm. So for me personally, Financially, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. That's not my priority. But if you're a startup in particular and you're looking through your choices, talk to a lawyer, tax accountant, tax lawyer, whatever it may be, but get some advice because there's pluses and minuses to every type of corporate formation. Got it. All right. So you mentioned you're going to be at about a thousand drugs by the end of the year. Hopefully a lot more, but yeah, hopefully a minimum. You're currently building a plant in Dallas, I think in the Deep Ellum neighborhood. Uh, that is a what twenty two thousand square foot plant, eleven Correct. million dollars. What is it going to make? Why did you decide to get into manufacturing? Well, it's going to be a robotic driven manufacturing plant, and the goal is for the plant to make as many different drugs as we could. So we'll make a year's supply of drug A, and then when we're finished with drug A, we'll make a year's supply of drug B, then drug C, then drug D, and depending on the volume of sales that we have, we'll expand the plant from there because we have room for expansion. So the goal is just to, again, using robotics, be the low-cost provider and keep on continuously pushing our pricing down. If you follow us at Cost Plus Drugs on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, whatever, you'll see that we've had multiple price reductions already, and we want to keep on pushing pricing lower. 
one of the things that I found interesting in reading up about your company is how very often the drug makers themselves are the ones who are targeted as being the you know bad guys when it comes to drug prices. But when you read your approach, it really is the middlemen who you're saying are are costing this. So do you think that the pharma has been getting kind of a bad rap? Yeah, I mean, pharma can encompass a lot of different types of companies, but manufacturers specifically, there are a lot of good guy manufacturers that have gotten a bad rep that's out of their control. You talk to companies like Eli Lilly, I was reading a press release of theirs, where, and obviously it came from the company, but still, they're talking about how their pricing has gone down for insulin over the years. Yet the cost of patients has gone up, and we've all seen the graphs, particularly anybody who's a diabetic knows the, the anger they feel just, just trying to get the medicine they need to survive. Very often, the, the price of the drug is being reduced from the manufacturer, but the price made available to the patient is either significantly more expensive than it should be, or it varies a lot. So one of the games that's played is, you know, there are discount cards and there are clubs and there's this and that where you might go and look for prices for your medication. And the difference in price between two Walgreens that are two miles apart may be significant or between a Walgreens and a CVS that are, you know, two blocks away from each other may be different. Or you may get a discount card that's only good for two months or, or one course of whatever it is that you need. And then you face the risk of that price being jacked up again. You know, it's just that instability, that variability, that uncertainty that plays games with people's lives that's just so unfortunate and one of the things that we solve. There's so many other companies that are trying to find similar ways to bring down prices in healthcare. Are you finding that there's a network that you're working with? How are you thinking about how to weave your way into the rest of the industry? We're not trying to at all other than manufacturers and distributors. If you make or sell a drug and you want to sell it to us at you know a reasonable cost, we'll buy it from you and distribute it. Period. End of story. We're not looking to fit in. And that's one of the challenges that some of these other companies that um, offer lower costs on drugs have fallen into. They're trying to work within the system, which is fine. And I understand it completely because it's super, super expensive not to work within that system. You can burn through a whole lot of money very quickly like we have. That's one of the reasons there hasn't been a company like ours start up before, because it's very hard to meet those two goals, having the lowest possible costs and making money or maximizing profitability at the same time. So interesting. So does that mean that you are missing typical functions within your company? Is there a business development team? Are the teams going out there and doing partnerships? Yeah, we have partnership teams, but we are stripped down. You're not going to see us spend money on PR advertising. When we had this conversation, it says, what's the best marketing that you can offer? Well, anybody who takes, you know, some of the mental health drugs that we offer, they're all part of communities that talk to each other. Anybody who takes a drug related to leukemia, they're all part of communities online that talk to each other. And the one way to be best friends with everybody in that community is to tell them about costplusdrugs.com and how much money they, they saved and how easy it is to go sign up. There's no monthly fees. And if we don't carry your drug, we'll alert you when we do. And that is our marketing. That is our PR. That is our partnership. And like you alluded to, the manufacturers look like the good guys working with us. And so we're now developing more and more trust. And that's how we're going to be able to add more and more drugs. I got to go back to the name. Is is it made for SEO? How did you come up with that name? Were there people who were suggesting something else? I'm, I'm a big fan of one inch names. 
you know, my first company was Micro Solutions. We did microcomputer software and integration. Second company was AudioNet. And then when we started streaming and nobody was, we had to make it a one word and then it became broadcast.com. Then I you started the, the world's first all high definition TV network. It was HDNet. Probably if I could have named the Dallas Mavericks, it would have been Dallas basketball team. The whole idea with um, cost plus drugs is one, to make it very simple to understand. And I put my name on it and it's the only company I have my name on because I didn't want companies to be able to dismiss it as, oh, it's just some investment that he has, you know, or um, if somebody was unsure if I was committed to the company, being able to tell them, look, not only have I invested a lot of money, but this has my name on it. So that tells you how serious I am. And, and is this the first time you've been involved in manufacturing? The fact that you're building this plant in the US, in Dallas, how many jobs do you think you're going to create? What made you get into manufacturing? Well, you know, if the goal is to be the low cost provider of drugs, then manufacturing makes sense because the technology has evolved. Um, it, it very much was a hands-on um, assembly line type of business. And now with new robotics technology, we're going to be able to push that cost down. And so we've invested 11 million to start. We have room to expand, 82 jobs to start. We have room to expand. And that's only in place. That doesn't include the robotics monitoring and programming and software and all the related jobs that come with it. Mark, everyone always uh, has questions for you about entrepreneurship and what they should be thinking about. Any uh, areas that you are looking at right now, where should people be pointing? I think you got to look at crypto, believe it or not. Now, the hard part of crypto is separating the signal from the noise. You know, the speculation on NFTs, that's, you know, that's fun. That's interesting. Um, you know, having a board ape or talking about board apes, you can have a lot of fun, it's, but it's just collectibles. And so there's a lot of noise there. But the NFTs are really a proof of concept for what's called smart contracts. And being able to have a programming language that's on distributed nodes um, and decentralized nodes, for that matter, allows you to create different types of businesses. And these things called decentralized autonomous organizations or DAOs is a business format that I think opens up a lot of doors to give you the best of capitalism and entrepreneurship along with the best of progressivism and employee ownership. Because with the DAO, everybody who participates, everybody who contributes can receive and or buy tokens that allow you to participate not only in the economics, but also in the management and suggestions and voting on things. And while there's a long way to go with it, I think if I was, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, any age for that matter, and looking for new ways to compete, I wouldn't be thinking of a new token. I wouldn't be thinking of a new NFT marketplace. I wouldn't be thinking of a new DeFi host or hub. I would be thinking of new ways, ways to take existing business processes and apply smart contracts to them and potentially DAOs to be able to compete with the incumbents. Just like fintech had a significant impact on how banks do their work, I think crypto is going to have the same type of impact on business processes across the board. That's one. I think that's the low-hanging fruit because you know it reminds me of the early days of the internet where initially it seemed like just creating a website was an act of advanced technology. But now we know years later that doing HTML and, and doing JavaScript are things they're teaching kids in middle school. It's not advanced. And I think we'll have the same perspective on um, smart contracts on decentralized and decentralized applications on blockchain. And then the, uh, the other thing that I would mention is artificial intelligence. Where we're at right now 
is there's two types of companies in this world. There's companies who are great at AI and everybody else. And if you're really going to get ahead and scale to be very, very big, you need to be good at AI. You don't need it to start a business. You don't need it to compete with a small business. But if you're going to get big and you want to compete with the behemoths, you are going to have to be good at AI. Great points. And you know, all of this, you can tie almost everything that you're saying together. It reminds me of that Bezos quote about your margins are my opportunities. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Everything that you're talking about from pharmaceuticals to uh, smart contracts, business processes, it's all the same thing. Drive out the middleman, drive out the process. Yeah, exactly. Just be smarter, right? You know, wherever I see a, an industry doing things the way it's always been done, and that's their, their reason, this is the way it's always been done. Bam, there's a huge opportunity there. And that's what I saw with the pharmaceutical industry. They became so entrenched in how they did business or how they're doing business. That's just expanded our opportunities significantly with costplusdrugs.com. And the same thing is applied with AI. If you look at the top 10 market cap companies in the stock market in the United States, nine of them are great at AI. And the 10th is Berkshire Hathaway, and they've got Warren Buffett. So that speaks for itself. Look, it's not like I took AI in college. I had to teach myself anything that I knew about AI. And going on YouTube and doing introduction to neural networks, taking a, a Python class, even if it's just in, introductory, doing some tutorials. I did machine learning tutorials on Amazon and on YouTube. Those are the types of things where it's just a matter of putting in the time. You don't have to be some advanced programmer or data scientist to learn these things. It's actually more basic math and common sense than anything else. And so if you put in the time, you can learn them and give yourself a competitive advantage. That was Mark Cuban. To dive deeper into this conversation, check out my newsletter on LinkedIn. It's also called This Is Working. And be sure to click the little bell on my profile if you always want to get alerts for new posts. One of the things I always find so refreshing about talking to Mark is his desire, as he said at the end of our interview, to not just do things a certain way because everyone else has done them that way. And you're definitely seeing that with Cost Plus. This is a really cool new idea on how to bring down the price of drugs, and it's already working. What I'm going to be looking for next is how does he bring that same approach to other industries? If this episode resonated with you, please post about it on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, wherever your community is. And be sure to tag me in. I love hearing what people are saying, good or bad, and I love to join the conversation. And finally, please be sure to rate This Is Working on your favorite podcast app. That is how word of this podcast spreads, so we really appreciate it when you leave those reviews. This is Working as a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Sarah Storm with help from Stephen Valdivia, Nina Melendez, Victoria Taylor, and Candace Weiner. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our head of news production. I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Stay strong. See you soon. <laughs>